that's like the double-edged sword of conservation is that our love and our passion and our drive is so strong that we'll just tolerate a lot of the other negative impacts because of that. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where we cover a variety of topics across climate change, conservation, and the environment. Today we are talking to Jesse from Lonely Conservationist, talking about conservation psychology. I'm James. And I'm Anna Lee. Jesse Panazzolo is the founder of Lonely Conservationist, which is a platform for conservationists to connect and share their mental health stories as they navigate a career in conservation. Jesse, uh, if you could introduce yourself, and I'm curious as to when you first began working in conservation and how that, how you, um, how that passion developed for you. Sure. Um, I'm Jesse. I'm the founder of Lonely Conservationist. So I guess my history in conservation begins when I was three years old, when my mom came back from a trip to Canada of all places and brought me back a stuffed toy gorilla. Um, when I was a kid, my mom was very specific about what she told me growing up. She always said, instead of that's just a flower, she would say that's a daisy, or she would say that's a specific kind of animal or plant, like that's um she would use specific language, so it really developed my curiosity as I grew up. So when she gave me this stuffed toy gorilla, it made me want to learn about real gorillas. And before I knew it, I was learning more about my closest relatives, great apes. And by the time I was five years old, I had, find, I had found out all the environmental destruction that had gone on in the rainforest all over the world and in their homes. And I remember asking, well, I don't remember, but my mom's friend says she remembers me coming up to her at only five years old and asking her and my mom how I could save the orangutans. So I spend most of my life trying to work that question out because in that moment I realized that adults actually didn't know the answer to everything and um, she couldn't give me a straight a straight solution to, solve, uh, to saving the orangutans. So that started my conservation journey, um, yeah, from a stuffed toy gorilla of all things. That's amazing. In terms of um, your, you continued to study the conservation in college, is that right? Yeah. So I did a undergraduate of biodiversity and conservation, and then I went to do my honors degree in conservation ecology, actually in North Sumatra with um, orangutan conservationists. So I got there in the end. And from what I've read, um, a lot of the the jobs in the conservation space end up being unpaid jobs or volunteer jobs. Is that what your experience was like as you began working in yeah. this space? I even paid to work and paid to volunteer a lot. And a lot of friends and family were asking what was wrong with me that I was paying to work because that kind of goes against the concept of working for money. Um, but it's really challenging. And I guess the reason why I started Learning Conservationist is that after over a decade of working in the industry, I still wasn't able to find anybody who was willing to pay me for my work. And I knew the quality of my work was good because I was volunteering with organizations and doing things beyond what normal volunteers would do, like writing reports and analyzing data and helping the other people on the team. So it was really disheartening to know that I'd won awards and and had the skills to help people and, and give tangible results to projects in the industry, but nobody was willing to pay me for my work. Yeah, I guess that's sort of one of the 
um, natural, unfortunate byproducts of sort of a, a cap, you know, uh, capitalistic world, right. Is so much service work goes, you know, underpaid or unpaid, um, because, you know, the, the rate of pay is equivalent to sort of the, the rate of production, um, and what people are willing to pay for it on the other side. And unfortunately the ragtags you're saving, um, don't have a, uh, means to pay you for <laughs> directly for the work you're doing. Mm. And also, I don't want to promote the fact that people like me should be the ones saving orangutans because when I was there and actually working in the space, I, the reason I came back to Australia is because I realized that I couldn't do long-term conservation or, or have sustainable outputs for that country because I wasn't going to have Indonesian children that I could pass on my knowledge to. I wasn't a part of the culture or the community there in a way that I could sustainably over a long-term period um, have a cultural change and behavioral change. Like I was seeing all the women go to the nurseries every day with their kids to, to propagate and grow the trees that they would use to replant the forest, revegetate it. And I just saw that it was all unfolding in front of me, that it was such an important thing for the community to be a part of. And I think that was also an important lesson that when you grow up, you think being a conservationist is all about working with exotic animals and cultures, but it was a really important lesson for me as well to know that sometimes I shouldn't be the one getting paid to do this work. And it's more important for me to be paid to do the work in my own culture so I can have that long-term sustainable change that's really important for um, viable conservation projects. So you returned back to Australia and is that when you decided to launch the blog? Um, it was about... A year and a bit later. So I decided to come back to Australia and I got a job in um, a small town in New South Wales and it wasn't working for me. It was a family business and it just wasn't a good environment. So I had to leave for my own mental health. And then I got another job where I was bullied professionally and had to leave and then the last job was an unpaid job where I wasn't being valued for my work. And even when there was opportunities to hire, it was said that I didn't have enough NGO experience. So they wouldn't take me on for the roles that I was already doing. So I think it was the concept of as long as I was working for free, why would they pay me? So it was after those three tries of working in Australia that I decided that it was just too hard and basically impossible. And sharing my story online was my last hurrah to see if there was any place for me in the conservation industry because I just felt so lonely. I felt like the loneliest conservationist. And, yeah, that's exactly why I called it Lonely Conservationist because I was trying to find out if there was anybody else who felt this way or if it was just me. How would you rate on a, on a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, how would you rate the current access to mental health resources for those who work in conservation and, um, uh, and, and in the environmental, uh, industry. Maybe about a one. I think a lot of other caring, uh, caring jobs, like if you're a therapist yourself or a nursing home carer, I, th I feel like there's a lot of measures in place to make sure that those workers and carers have access to mental health help. But, conservationists are carers as well. We're really empathetic and that's the reason we have this job because we obviously care about wildlife and ecosystems and what goes on on our planet. 
Uh, and it, it's just, I think it's a problem because there's so many avenues into conservation that it's not one regulated industry. You could be an academic, you could be a restoration worker, you could be in a million different avenues in conservation. And I guess the problem there is that there's not one streamlined mechanism to help conservationists. So I think that's a bit of an issue as to why it's such a problem. But also a lot of conservationists don't have chronic mental illnesses. It might be something that happened in the field to them once or they had a really remote or isolated incident which has stuck with them for a long time. And I think the stigma is that if we're not seen as being mentally unwell people, that we wouldn't treat one incident as if you would put a bandage on a leg. It seems like there's a stigma around going and asking for help when it's not a chronic part of our lives. It's just one incident that, I mean, there's, when I went to Indonesia, I feel like I should have sought help when I came home because of the things I experienced there. But because I didn't have a chronic mental illness, I there was a stigma for me even about seeking help. And I thought as long as I had friends, I should push through this myself. And I think that's the kind of stigma that sits with people in the conservation industry is there's only a select amount of jobs and you always have to be on your putting your best foot forward. There's an air of perfectionism about people in the conservation industry. So I think for a lot of people, even seeking help for mental health is a sign of weakness and they feel like they won't be as eligible for the limited positions if they do acknowledge their need for mental health help. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to un- unpack there. Um, I guess one, one thing I'd like to just kind of dig on deeper is, you know, I think you, you're pointing to one of the sort of biggest challenges with mental health uh, I've noticed is that even the word, the, the sort of use of that word chronic uh, and traditionally, right. It's been reserved for schizophrenia and, uh, you know, deep, deep sort of manical, uh, dysfunctional depression. But the truth is we all have a, a somewhat of a chronic condition. Um, we all have, uh, things that are kind of rooted in us from a mental health standpoint and whether they, whether they came from one inciting incident or sort of years of, of not managing or talking to somebody about something that was eating at you or multiple small incidents, it doesn't really matter because all the issues do become chronic and anxiety is a chronic condition and, you know, feeling lonely is a chronic condition. Um, by definition of what chronic should mean, meaning it is a prolonged over a state of time and it does not just go away very quickly and it can come back and go and come back. Uh, I think if you actually look at the word, if people define the word, use the word chronic appropriately, you would find that almost a hundred percent of people have some kind of chronic mental health condition. And I think being aware of that helps to reduce the stigma, but it's not something that's widely known that everybody is facing this. And I think when I told my story, it was the first time a lot of people admitted that they also felt lonely in the industry because there's such a stigma around being perfect in conservation that nobody wants to even admit that they might be feeling even a little bit uncomfortable with the way things are happening. So I think it's important for people to start the conversation because it invites more people to look at themselves and see if they actually do need help or if they should start talking to people. Um, Because I think normalizing mental health and seeking help for it is, is really important in the industry, especially when a lot of people are working in 
remote condi- uh, remote environments, um, really harsh environmental conditions. They could be faced with natural disasters. And even like after the Australian bushfires where a lot of people here lost their whole study species. And it's really a lot to have everything you were working on for five years just disappear. And I think a lot of conservationists felt a lot of grief after that, but I don't think it's socially acceptable for us to feel grief over the death of species or environments. So I think it's about making it acceptable and inviting people to feel these emotions and not ridicule them for it because it's really real. Just curious about, you know, you, you work in Australia, uh, you probably have a strong network, particularly given your history of con- of working with conservationists in Australia. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the state of affairs for conservationists coming out of the bushfires? Cause that was so intense and so hard um, and so awful that it, you know, it was unique in its scale and its, and its awfulness. Um, can you, can you talk a little more, uh, talk a little bit about sort of what it means to be in your field in Australia right now and coming out of what happened in December and January and, and um, yeah, anything, anything you want, you want to share about that? Well, I think it's really challenging because a lot of the people that have had their houses and livelihoods wiped out by the fires are now in a global pandemic. So we haven't really had a chance to rebuild or restore or all of the conservation efforts were stopped because it just so happens that it's one global disaster after another. Um, but apparently our government is putting a lot of money into conservation after the pandemic ends so we can start to rebuild and restore these areas. Though our government is at the moment liberal, which is not very environmentally minded, so I'll be interested to see how that actually pans out when it comes to it. Um, so it's just a lot of uncertainty at the moment because I often think about what these, not even the conservationists, but what the people who are living in these regions that were deeply affected by the fires are experiencing now where they have to be socially isolated or they can't, all their businesses were taken out and now nobody can work or find other work. It's just a really tough situation for a huge chunk of Australia to be wiped out And then we just have to sit there for months on end in a global pandemic. And I have no idea how these people are managing or how they're coping. Um, It's not talked about or broadcasted. But if you want to find out what the conservationists were thinking and experiencing while the bushfires happened, there's a few blogs on our website where people who are in evacuation centres were talking about their experience. And from one of them, there was a lot of fear She was sitting in the evacuation centre after she'd worked with a really conservative community and and just got them to open their minds about um, restoration and conservation practices in in their small community. But as soon as the fires hit, they wanted to clear a whole heap of land so it would act as a fire break. And it was basically undoing all of her education and all of the conservation efforts that she had put into this community. So I think the fires brought about a lot of fear And I'm not sure what's happened in those communities because I do live in a big city of Melbourne. Um, I'm very detached from what's happening because Australia is a huge huge country and you only find out what's been shared on social media and the news and there's just not a lot of information for someone like me at this time. So I guess, yeah, I'll have to investigate with my community a bit more about how these people have been affected, but... I think because of the global pandemic, our attention has been turned. As soon as the fires stopped, it was turned from one disaster to another. So, 
yeah, it's been a really challenging time for people impacted by the fires. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's, uh, it's, it's terrible. Um, uh, on so many levels, but uh, yeah, I can imagine for working in that field in Australia and it's worse seeing, seeing those fires, you know, break out and not being able to really do anything about it, uh, you know, at its peak and seeing the destruction and the death and the damage. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it was hard for, it's hard for us, you know, um, uh, as, as wrong as that may sound like seem all the way from here in the States as, mm wildlife lovers and, um, um, and, and human lovers too, like seeing this, seeing this go down. I just, I can't imagine what it was like, you know, when, when that's your backyard, uh, when you're working to, you know, protect those very species and those lands. Yeah. Even suburbs 20 minutes from my house were on fire. And that was really scary for me because I am in a city and I'm not far north of the actual city center. So it was crazy how much the fires were penetrating suburban areas and people who aren't usually impacted by fires and who that's not usually a concern for it was a concern for them this summer and even I was having to make evacuation plans even though I'm in a suburban area because the fires were 20 minutes away from my house so it's just crazy when um it it gives people a lot of time to think about how we should be looking back at how the first nations people in Australia managed the land and managed the fires and how we are managing conservation in Australia because this like improper management and global warming and climate change and all of this is what led to these fires. So maybe this is a wake up call for Australia and how we have to get our act together and focus more of our attention on conservation and make sure our country is actually able to survive into the future because at the rate the world is going um, places like Australia that are really dry are only going to get drier and we're only going to get more affected. So I think hopefully this was the wake up call we needed. I was just going to say the factors of like, you might be facing a natural disaster or mass extinction, and then you're not getting paid for your work. And then you're working unusual hours and in remote conditions and all of these factors together that leads to extreme burnout and fatigue in the industry. So I think there's there's a lot of layers to unpack in conservationists and why they experience these things. So it's not even just their studies, uh, their study species goes extinct or there's a mass extinction. There's like five other factors playing into their mental health as well. So it's, it's so complicated and it's surprising how much people can withstand. That, you know, there's, there's something I noticed, um, I've been working in the elephant space uh, through as a uh, investor advisor in a, um, a program in Laos for the last couple of years, and one of the things I was surprised to see is the lack of kind of camaraderie across the conservation industry and how much sort of rather sort of passive aggressive competition there is, and that like you know for example you would think. One would think that everybody who works in elephant conservation um, all is sort of working hand in hand and trying to advance the welfare for the species and move repopulation forward. But when you dig into it and you get in and you're in it, you realize, well, everyone is trying to make their approach correct. And everyone's trying to prove that they're they're the smartest in the room, um, uh, that they're 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 doing things right and and you know, you know, whoever's doing something differently is probably doing something wrong and they're keeping things close to the chest. And there's just 
I, I didn't realize until I was in it, this level of sort of competition that there is uh, across people working and sacrificing their lives for the, even the same species. Uh, is that something you picked up on well, Jesse? And do you think that sort of makes this issue of loneliness and mental health even tougher, you know, in the fact that like, there's not as much camaraderie as, as really there, it seems like there should be, or is that just unique to what I saw in the elephant space in Southeast Asia? No, that's everywhere. (laughs) That's a huge problem because if we pulled our resources, because there's limited resources in conservation, right? So if everybody who's working on elephants pulled their resources to make some really incredible conservation efforts, maybe the situation for elephant conservation would be much better. But the fact is you're totally right and there is this huge competition. And I think when I started to see people on Lonely Conservationists start to form these groups and collaborate with each other, that was one of the most rewarding things to have come from this because I didn't intend for that to happen, but it's working to solve one of the biggest problems that we face in conservation. And I think it's an issue because when you're working and just say you're working in the elephant space and you're getting bullied by your boss or you're having a hard time in, in one um, organization, you can't move to another elephant organization because you'd be seen as being a traitor or you wouldn't be trusted by your employees or by there would be rumors spread around about you. So it's really challenging because people feel trapped with the people they're working for when there is that such close competition as well, because they don't want to be seen to playing into drama. So it's interesting how that social politics and competition is sometimes worth more to the people in the industry than the actual conservation output. If, just switching gears and maybe uh, some po- positives. Um, do you think, um, you know, the 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 challenge conservationists have in access to mental health and the loneliness that we you've been talking about and sharing make a lot of sense? Are there any unique, um, you know, attributes to, you know, the 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 fact that you do spend time with uh, or around? I shouldn't even really be with. It should be around. Um, uh, you know, wildlife and the bond you get from that, or do you, do you find that so few people, um, actually are interacting with wildlife correctly, or they have to sort of deal with the loss of the wildlife that they're trying to protect on a regular basis, which is, you know, heart wrenching. Is there any, any sort of positive element, um, or what have you found in dedicating your life to this what positive energy do you draw from that, uh, given that it is a great sacrifice? You know you know what you're working on has altruistic value um, beyond you know monetary value, and you know you're doing like, really important work. Is, is there some positives you can draw, you draw from that? Yeah, well, I think no conservationist really has a choice if they want to be in the industry or not, because a lot of conservationists are in it because they're really passionate about it. They might have grown up with a drive to protect species or over time, they might've formed a bond with a certain environment or landscape. And I think that's why we tolerate working for free and all these other things is because we will do anything to protect what we wanna protect, whether it be a species or a landscape or an ecosystem or whatever. And it's interesting because going through the blogs and drawing out key themes, one of the most common used, commonly used words in these blogs is love. People love animals, people love their work. And it's just, I think there's so much positives in a internal um, way. Like 
I say now that I get paid and change because every day I go to bed so fulfilled with what I've been doing and what I've been working with, but I just have no money in the bank. So I think what keeps people going is the fact that they feel like they're doing something really important and they're working with animals that a lot of people on the planet would never have get to see in, in normal life. So there is obviously so much love and passion and amazing emotional benefits for being a conservationist and a lot of the experiences I've had I wouldn't have traded for the world even if they were surrounded by other negative impacts so I think that's like the double-edged sword of conservationists that our love and our passion and our drive is so strong that we'll just tolerate a lot of the other negative impacts because of that I'd love if you could talk a little bit about um, imposter syndrome and how you've seen your community, um, you know, bring that topic to light. Yeah, so imposter syndrome is a huge one. Basically, it's when you feel like a fraud for doing things that you're obviously pretty good at and you're getting far in. Um, I experience it all the time, but it was really prevalent to me when I would ask people to talk about their experiences in the industry and they didn't even think they were good enough to submit a blog. So the imposter syndrome steeps so deep that people don't even feel worthy to talk about their experiences in hurdles they've overcome or in not doing well in the industry. I think there's this stigma that you have to be perfect and a CEO of an elite company even to matter. And what I've been trying to do in Lily Conservationist is break down that stigma so you can feel like you matter just because you exist. You're, you have intrinsic worth and you're important just because of who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done so far and what part of your journey you're on. And it's taken a long time to get the message through to some conservationists because of just how elitist and competitive this industry is. So every day it's a work in progress. And I think even sometimes when I'm really struggling, I will share it on Instagram because every single time I do, somebody messages me and, and says that that's really helped them and they were feeling the same way and they just – it's so good that other people relate to them and they're not alone. And I think making people feel like it's okay to be themselves and to be human reduces that imposter syndrome a bit because they don't have this perception that everyone on social media or everyone in the professional world is doing much better than them. Because in reality, we're all just people just trying to get by. And I think I want to help show that side of the industry more so people feel more comfortable in celebrating the work that they're actually doing. You've touched on a lot of different reasons, Jesse, of why mental health uh, is so challenging and is such a big problem in the world of conservation. And just just to recap those from what I've heard from you, you know, there's one is just there's a lot more stigma still in this community than there is um, maybe in other parts of the world or other communities. Uh, two is the you know sort of the underpaid nature and that so many are working for free and they just you know even if you break down the stigma can't afford. Uh, um, I doubt a lot of conservations have healthcare, for example. Um, three is, you know, sort of the intense competition that uh, exists that I, I don't think people realize um, that puts a lot of pressure on you to, to constantly perform um, that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know from the outside world. Uh, another one you talked about is uh, the fact that there isn't a lot of camaraderie that, you know, as a byproduct of that competition, people don't work together and lock arms as much as they should for a given species, 
even though it probably would advance their work and improve their mental health. Uh, but there is sort of this, this divide. And then the last one you just mentioned about imposter syndrome, sort of feeling like their work isn't being validated on, um, you know, sort of the larger scales or the, the currency of LinkedIn and all these other things that we've used as a society to validate someone's career worth. Um, and if you, you know, those are all valid things that are real. If, if you, where would you start to stack rank those in terms of like what, if, if you could solve any one of those problems first, what would you solve and why? Well, I think what I have been trying to solve is the community one, because when you have a community, it kind of helps to solve all these other problems. So when I started Lonely Conservationist, I didn't intend to make a community. It was purely by accident. I just wanted to find out if I was alone or not. And now there's over 3,000 Lonely Conservationists in my community. And I kind of felt, well, now I'm responsible for all these people. What do I have to do? And I thought that I had to solve everybody's problems and I had to find them all jobs and resolve all their work disputes. But it turned out by just being in a community, all those problems started to solve themselves. People started collaborating and then there was more opportunities being shared around now I've been working with a team of like-minded people. We can start to discuss projects that might bring in some revenue. And now it's we have a list of mental health resources on our website and we've been able to open up the discussion to mental health and reduce the stigma. So I think by having like-minded people together, it reduces all of the other impacts from all of the other things that you suggested. And is there uh, maybe a couple of particular stories uh, from the community, not sharing anybody's personal information, but just anecdotally um, and anonymously, there are a couple that stand out to you that uh, sort of worth sharing as a kind of an example of the role um, your community and Lonely Conservationists is serving um, today? I have my favorite one. And it was late last year when I got a message from somebody in the UK. So I'm in Australia and this is on the other side of the world. And they messaged me because they said they had just been in an interview. And for whatever reason, if it was the pressure, if it was the climate anxiety, they just broke down. They completely burst into tears. And the person that was doing the interview actually was a lonely conservationist. And what she did was direct her to my community and said, there's a whole bunch of resources and people that feel the same way as you, that they can help you. And and form a community so you don't feel so alone. And then instead of ridiculing her or exiling her, this person who was interviewing her actually employed her as well. And that just made me feel so incredible that somebody from my community was able to empathize with somebody she was hiring and understand what she was going through, be able to direct her to a community of people that could help her and still allowed her the opportunity to get that job. So I think for me, that was one of the times where I was like so happy because I could see a tangible result from the work in my community. Yeah, I think that's my favorite time. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah especially because it's from the other side of the world. Like it wasn't anybody in Australia with me. It was to see how far reaching the impact was and just how global our community is as well. Absolutely. Do you, what, what do you see going forward for lonely conservationists? Um, you know, uh, what, uh, what's next, you know, what's, what's next for you? There's actually one that we released today and it came about because I was in a meeting and she suggested that I couldn't keep working 
40 hours a week for free on Lonely Conservationist. I was, I was feeling really run down um, because I do a lot of interviews and um, correspondence with people in America and often the time difference is really challenging for me. I might have to do work after 7 p.m. when I've already had dinner and a wine and they'll be like, we need this done by the end of today when I would be asleep in the other side of the world's day. Um, and I had to do a panel at 10 p.m. So when I had a meeting with the scientist and she's like, Jesse, it's just not sustainable to be working this hard and to not be able to support yourself. I didn't know I was going to ask for help, but the next time I went on to Instagram and started sharing some things, I just ended up saying without any preparation, if you want to be a part of my team and if you want to help me out, please do. And I'd always been so nervous for that because I'm campaigning against people working for free and I don't want to exploit conservationists. And I guess that's why I thought I had to carry the weight of this work on my own. But some lovely people from my community have agreed to kind of be on a board and start a team with me. And because of that, we've actually been able to launch today a new program called Conservation, no, Lonely Conversationists. It's hard because it's, it sounds like lonely conservation. <laughs> um, but basically, we're going to explore conservation psychology topics like burnout, failure, imposter syndrome every month. We'll have a theme. Um, then we'll have a podcast style, style discussion with a professional. And then the next week, we'll do a workshop so people can learn the skills. Because I always thought I, with Lonely Conservationists, I'm delving more into conservation psychology and I don't have a background in it, so I thought maybe I should get a degree or learn more. But instead, I thought, what a cool opportunity for us to get professionals on. We can all learn together, and then it kind of breaks down the walls between my lonely conservationists and professionals in the industry, and it might help to reduce the imposter syndrome. So we literally la launched that this morning. Um, so, yeah, if you want to get involved... It's going to be brand new, and I, I really hope it's something that continues on and is really beneficial for the lonely conservationists out there who want to learn more about what's going on from a conservationist point of view rather than an animal and wildlife point of view. It's very cool. Yeah, amazing. Congratulations. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. <laughs> and uh, on behalf of you know a lot of the conservationists that Annalee and I work with, I'm sure um, they, they're all very thankful and either they're part of your community or, or they don't know about it yet. And we'll, we'll make sure we tell them um, because uh, there's a ton of value. And, and I think you're, you're spot on um, that you're serving a huge need uh, for people out there. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you for, for all you do. Thank you for wanting to shed light on it because I still feel like a small fish in a big pond and I'm always so bewildered when other people uh, maybe this is just the imposter syndrome, but I'm always so bewildered when other people think that this is an exciting initiative because I keep thinking back to when it was just me on a couch thinking I was alone. So it's still really crazy that there's so many other people who feel this way as well. Well, if you look at, uh, if you look at our planet as beautiful it is compared to the, the universe, uh, we're all small fish in a big pond. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the reality. But I think you know, you're doing what you can do is just take, you know, start somewhere, um, solve a problem and just step by step, continue to, to improve it and continue and solve, solve more problems. And that's where all the best ideas in the world started with, uh, solving a very small problem for a small set of users. And then it just grows from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I used to think because I'm just a conservationist myself, like I'm not a community organizer or a project manager, I was freaking out that I was suddenly responsible for a community of so many people. But then that kind of became the benefit of me just being a conservationist is I knew what everybody was going through. I could relate to them. And if this community was helping me, it was probably helping a lot of the other people um, in the community as well. So I think that kind of helped with my imposter syndrome is realizing the perks of what makes you unique and maybe the things that you thought made you not equipped to deal with something. Maybe it's actually a benefit in disguise. Absolutely. Annalie, any, any last questions from you? No, that was all from me. Thank you again, Jesse. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you. Absolutely. You're, um, you're at the intersection, Jesse, of probably the two hardest and most existential uh, problems uh, humanity faces, which is climate change and mental health. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, kudos to you for, uh, for the bravery. Um, for being at that intersection. And, uh, yeah, I think when you, when you think about that, it's, it's hard not to, you know, value the work you're doing. Um, so I, yeah, I, th I thought, I thought it was, uh, interesting. I was thinking about what you do and the work you're doing is that sort of that Venn diagram and, uh, it felt, yeah, it felt very important. It feels so bewildering when you put it like that. It feels like there's a lot of responsibility <laughs> on my shoulders. <laughs> Absolutely. There is, but that's that's what comes with um you know uh, that that's what comes with having impact on people i guess so it gives me more drive as well if it's so important i must do a good job there you go you must do and the best job you can job. do yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i'm trying my best that's you you got to do the best job you can do right that's that's really all all the all the expectations are um, don't not a good job compared to anybody else's standards, but just do the best that uh, you can do day to day. Especially because it's uncharted territory. There's no leader in this that I know of, or nobody that's done anything quite like this that I can base what I'm doing off of. So I think the scariest part for me is that I'm just in uncharted territory and navigating it myself. But I think I learn really well from mistakes. So uncharted territory is probably a good place for me to be there. <laughs> Yep. Great. Well, thank you for the time. It's great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much.